Good morning, everybody. I'm getting a high sign back there that the mic is hot, so I'll step up a little bit closer. Good to see all of you. I apologize for not coming back and mixing very much. Uh, we've had a little sickness at our house, and I don't believe I'm, uh, what do you call it, contagious? But just to make sure, I'll, I'll kind of keep my distance. And so forgive me if after the sermon or after the class, I, I go down to the front and stay down there. And then after the sermon, I might slip out a side door just to make sure I don't pass any of this on. Well, you bet you, Clem. I got a lot of things I want to pass on, but it's not that, anything to do with sickness. It's all to do with the, the word of God and the history he's provided. So hope everybody's well. And we'll get started in, back in 2 Samuel this morning. Review. Let's do some review. How many of David's wives were named in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5? It's not cheating to look. And the number itself is not important. It's just that there are a number of them. And when he takes up residence in Jerusalem, he will add to those and more concubines along with those. So this is just one of the things we see about David and his life and some of the customary practices of the day. What did Jesus call us back to in Matthew 19, however? Matthew 19, he calls us back to Genesis and the creation account. One man and one woman to become one, to become one. But this is a departure that we see in scripture among many godly men and women and God allowed it. What's happened to Abner by this time? Not little Abner, but Abner, who was Abner anyway? Anybody recall what his place was, his position? Commander of Saul's army. That's exactly who Abner was. And when Saul died, Abner put Saul's, well, his offspring. Who was that guy's name? What was his name now? Anybody remember who, who Abner put on the throne? It's Ishbosheth. Put Ishbosheth on the throne. So Abner, even though Saul was dead, still maintained a healthy uh, position of power, and he tried to use it well for the kingdom. And what happened to Ishbosheth after Abner made him king? Anybody remember that account? Did he stay alive very long? He did not. There were a couple of guys who thought, Apparently thought, the text doesn't say that, but they apparently thought they could get in good with David by taking Ishbosheth's head to David. And when they brought Ishbosheth's head to David, what did David do? He killed those guys just like he killed who else? Who else did he kill? Remember when, when Saul and Jonathan were killed? Saul asked his armor bearer to do something. He wanted his armor bearer to kill him. What did his armor bearer say? I'm not going to do that. So Saul killed himself, fell on his own sword. 
Well, this young Amalekite fella apparently came upon the scene and saw them dead and somehow got it in his mind that he would tell David that he killed Saul as an act of mercy. And David said, since you have lifted up your hand against the Lord's anointed, you will die as well, which is bad news for that young man because he wasn't telling the truth to start with. <laughs> A little bit to back up on it now. So when these two guys kill Ishbosheth and think they're bringing good news to David, David has them executed as well. This is, this is how things are going. How was Mephibosheth crippled? Who's Mephibosheth, you might ask? He is the son of whom? Jonathan. Saul's grandson, son of Jonathan. So this young man would be very special in David's eyes because of the relationship he had with David. But how was Mephibosheth crippled? When word came back to Mephib... to that little boy's nurse... That Jonathan and Saul had been killed. She apparently panicked and jumped up to run with him. And he fell. And that's how he became crippled in his feet. And he was how old? Anybody remember? He was five. Five years old. And so David brings this young man or will bring this young man into his home to care for him and show him honor as the son of Jonathan. Where was David's first capital city? Hebron, or Hebron. I'm not sure how they pronounced it, but I call it Hebron because it just sounds easier to me. Hebron is probably more accurate. And I think that's the last review question. The next slide will show a map, and I meant to get the, the thing, but can you see Hebron and can you see Jerusalem? If you look... But you see the word Judah, if you look below the D and the A, just below the D and the A is Hebron. And just above the A and the H in Judah is Jerusalem. You see Bethlehem first, and then you go up a little higher, and there's Jerusalem. About 18 miles distance between those two towns. So David starts with his capital in Hebron, and he will, in chapter 5, be moving it to Jerusalem. And chapter 5 is where we're starting this morning. But I just wanted to give you an idea of the layout of the land. Of course, there's the Dead Sea. And directly across from Hebron to the east is about the area of En Gedi where David hid out from Saul. So just, just to give you some features of, of what's going on here and some idea of the distances. 18 miles does not seem much to us today. We can cross set. You want to go eat lunch at Shawnee today, that's about what you'll drive, and it won't take you long to get there. But things were different in those days, and the land was not as well roaded. Didn't have the nice streets and roads that we have. Aren't, aren't we a fortunate people to live in this day and age in so many ways? So you can imagine what that was like. And uh, we'll show you some pictures here. This is... Um, an artist's conception of the ancient Canaanite city of Jebus, which would become Jerusalem. This was probably about all it was when David would take it in about 1000 B.C. So there's an idea of what it looked like. And this will all greatly change as time goes on. And here is a model that 
uh, has been built in the city of Jerusalem. And this is, if you see, you see the temple, is that pretty obvious? That's the largest building there near the, uh, in the left upper corner. That's the temple. And down in front of the temple, you'll see those walls coming down like a little peninsula. That's the city of David. You'll see if the next picture, there's a couple more down here. There it is. That's the encircled part with that black circle. That's basically the city of David. And up at the top in the right corner there is is the Temple Mount. Of course, the Temple Mount wasn't there originally. That was built later. So below and south of the present Temple Mount and between the Kidron to the east and the Tyropian Valley on the west is the city of David. This was captured from the Jebusites and became the capital after Hebron. This is a really neat model. You can stand there and walk all around it. And I, I don't remember the scale, but it was plenty large enough that as you walked around it, you could see how everything would have been laid out, where things would have been. And it was, it was a very cool thing to, to observe and study. There's the welcome mat, city of David. They take great pride in their history for good reason. A lot of flowers in the area. Uh, it's, it's desert but they like to splash it with color, and so there's flowers all over the place of one kind or another. And there again is that picture we saw a moment ago of the city of David. So we're going a thousand years into the future now with these steps. These are from the time of Christ, and they ascend to the temple, the southern end of the Temple Mount. That's what we were looking at. You, you look up the city of David, that little peninsula, and up at the top of that would have been Temple Mountain. This is where... The, the top would have been. This is also the likely location of Peter's address to the crowds on the day of Pentecost. So these steps almost certainly would have been used by Jesus. And this is probably where it would have been a, the perfect place for Peter and the apostles to have been because these steps are wide and, and long. And all over the area are mikvahs. What's a mikvah? That's a Hebrew word for a bath. The Jews were big on ceremonial washing, and so approaching the temple, it would have made sense to have baths all over the place where people could have washed themselves, purified themselves, so that they could approach the, the temple area to worship. And so wouldn't it have been very handy for Peter to preach on that day when they asked what to do in response to their crucifixion of Jesus? What did he tell them? Let every one of you repent. And be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all over the place were these mikvahs, these baths, where they could have easily baptized 3,000 people. So we're just we're jumping ahead, trying to give you a little flavor, though. Because Christ was prophesied to sit on the throne of David. And it's David we're studying right now. And we're not studying David simply because of David. We're studying David because his part in history leading up to the coming of the Christ. And all of this, as the Hebrew writer would say, these are just the shadows. And the shadows are cast by the reality. Just like a, a tree shadow is not the main thing. The main thing is the tree. The tree casts the shadow. And so what we're studying are the shadows. And as Paul would write to the Galatian church, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Christ is the one who matters, and so all of this is leading up to him. Also in the city of David is the Gihon Spring. It's the lowest point in Jerusalem, but it's the highest purpose for anointing kings because this is where David would have Solomon anointed to take the kingdom 
uh, after him because there were others who were vying for that kingdom. But this is a descent. You, you climb down these stairs to get down to the Gihon Spring. And that looks just like a blue hole in the ground. It's, it's, it's lit, but those lights are under the water. And you can't really tell it by this picture, but you're looking in the clear water coming up from the Gihon Spring. The Gihon Spring is also the source of the, the, uh, the water that flows downward to the Pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam figures prominently in Bible history as well. So all of this, it's all in the same area, but these things are taking place, some of these things, over hundreds and thousands of years. So it's very interesting, I think, to take a look at what's going on. I have other pictures. Uh, I don't know how many I need to show you, but for right now, let's just do the readings. Oh, I didn't color that. I don't know why, but somehow... Shade gets turned to gray. Can you see that all right? All right. Still fairly legible. So let's start in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. Let's do a little reading. I need somebody for 1 through 5. I should have put these up first so you can be looking and say, oh, what the hard words in there. Charles has eliminated the hard words from the first five verses, and he's going to read that. So uh, chapter 5, 6 through 10. Who would like to take 6 through 10? All right, Robert's got 6 through 10, and then we'll do 11 through 13 and, and break and discuss that and come back to some more. 11 to 13 is pretty short. Who wants the short one? Anybody? Don't be afraid to take the short one. All right, I'll take the short one. <laughs> Chapter 5, 1 through 5. Charles? Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a leader over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord of Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned for 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now he and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here. Even those who are blind and those who love will turn you away Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever strikes the Jebusites to reach those who left and those who are blind, who are hated by David's soul, though the water tunnel. For that, that reason, they say, People who are blind and people who left shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it, it the city of David. And David built all around from the mountain Noah. And in David became greater and greater for the Lord God of armies with, was with him. Oh, I'm reading that. For somebody else to read 11 through 13. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he 
came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And it goes on to tell their names. But so far, what's happening in the first five verses? Who's coming to David? David is seen as a very prominent, successful, popular figure among all of Israel. And so it says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. I'm I'm sure that doesn't mean all the people from every tribe, but we're talking about representatives from every tribe. That's what I think we're supposed to see here. They come to David at Hebron. And they say, we're your bone and your flesh. Saul was a king, but you're the one who led us in and out. You're the one whose whose song said, Saul killed these thousands, but David is ten thousands. We want you to be king. So what do they do with David at Hebron? Do what? Somebody say they anoint him? If you didn't, well, just imagine you did. Because that's what they did. But wait a minute, hadn't David already been anointed? Who anointed David previously? Samuel did. And I think the people knew this, and that's why they said what they did about him. And so it's like they are reestablishing their commitment, and they anoint him all over again, not because Samuel's anointing was not legitimate, but as if to say, we are in this with you to anoint you as king over us. And David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 40 years. So how old was he when he died? Yeah, pretty good math. And David is also the one who wrote that a man's days are three score and ten. And if by reason of strength, lived to be 80. But he married too many wives and had too many concubines, so I'm sure that kept him from making it to 80. <laughs> just, just throw that in there. So, they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Who were the Jebusites? Well, they were Canaanites that had not been driven out in the time of Joshua and the original conquest. And what did the Jebusites say to David? We got a strong fortress here. The blind and the lame can keep you from coming in. That's how... Strong they thought their fortress was. And David said, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David. So it wasn't really going up there after the the blind and the lame. That was just what the Jebusites were saying as a taunt. Uh, Even our our blind people and our lame people can keep you from coming in here. And All right, let's go get those blind and lame people and take them over. So it says... uh, They went through the water tunnel, it says in verse 8. And we're not sure exactly what that was. Hezekiah would later have a tunnel made. When, when the Assyrians came to take Israel, the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C., Hezekiah thought, well, we're next. And so he had a tunnel built that ran the water into the town and kept it from being outside of the town. 
I, I'm not sure, but I think it may be when we look at this one picture of Jebus. You see that structure that comes off the side and goes down towards the Kidron Valley? I believe that was where the water source was originally with the Jebusites. And I believe, I don't know for sure, but I believe that's where uh, Joab and his men broached the wall, went up through that water tunnel into the city, and, and that's how they took Jebus originally. But at this point, there is some kind of a water tunnel, and they go up through there. Whatever the description might be, that's how they took the city. And so it says, David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around from Millo and inward. So it started out pretty small, uh, but he expanded it, and it grew and has become uh, much more than what it originally was. And so now this is the place where David is setting up house and setting up uh, the capital of, of the nation. So who builds him a house? David is not only respected at home, he's respect, respected abroad. And Hiram, king of Tyre, doesn't just send the materials, but he sends his workers, his laborers, his skilled men, his masons, and his carpenters, and they built a house for David. And you may recall, if you've read ahead, I hope you've read ahead, and I hope we're just kind of reviewing some of this. I hope you're so familiar with this, you're going, yeah, I remember all this. But David will later be sitting in his wonderful house, built by Hiram's stonemasons and carpenters, living in luxurious cedar uh, paneling and, and all of that, and he will say what? He will ask, why is the ark of God sitting out there in a tent while I'm in here in this nice house? And so he decides he wants to build the Lord a house. He asks the Lord about that. What's the Lord tell him? Did I ask you to build me a house? No, I haven't asked you to build me a house, but if you do... Uh, Okay, but Solomon's going to do it, not you. But here's what I'm going to do, God says. I'm going to build your house. And he didn't mean a house like David already had. He meant, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your throne. I am going to put my son on the throne that you are starting here. That's how that throne's going to be known. He's going to be the son of David. My son is going to be called the son of David. He's going to sit on your throne. This is, this is coming down the pike, coming down the line. And one of the reasons I want to tie all these things together, all of this together, I want to talk about David's wives and, and the mess that he had with that and that the way he tried to keep order and there was always disorder around him. He wasn't a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. But what had God said he was looking for when he came to David? He said, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And so I'm looking at David and you and I can all look at David and we can say, man, he was a mess, but somehow... In amongst all that mess, he was a man after God's own heart. And that typifies every one of us who are seeking out God. Because there's not a one of us sitting here who's not a mess in one way or another. And probably in several ways. And so I look at David and I, I have great hope. It gives me hope for myself. That I can make it. Not that I was great like David. But because I have messed up like David. And we have that in common. And I think he would greatly agree with me. If he, were, if he were here to talk to us today, I don't think he would talk about his greatness. I think he would talk about God's greatness. Because that's what he did all through the Psalms. He never talked about himself as anyone 
in particular, but he always talked about God as being the one who was great, being his rock, his fortress, his confidence, his savior. And that's where we are. And I think that's why God would say of David, he's a man after my own heart. What's that? Made a bunch of Catholics. Made a bunch of what? Catholics. Made a bunch of Catholics. <laughs> right. The <laughs> first pope and all that. Yeah. Even though he was married. <coughs> yeah, that, that's what some claim. Well, he's the only guy besides Jesus who walked on water. He's the one who stood up on Pentecost, of course, and preached that sermon. But where else did he preach a first sermon? He preached a first sermon, in a sense, to Cornelius and his household, the Gentiles, and that was by God's decree. Peter, I want you to go to Cornelius and preach to him. Peter didn't decide that. That was God. Time for the Gentiles to come in. Peter, you're the man. Feed my sheep, Jesus told him. Feed my sheep twice. Feed my sheep, he told Peter three times. Peter was the man Jesus wanted to feed his sheep, and so Peter fed the sheep. Very prominent man, but also a mess. And what did Paul say of himself? What did he call himself? Chief of sinners. And one who did not deserve to be preaching. And yet there he was. And he's no different than you and I. There's so much hope in the gospel. And you see it all through these pages where God is giving us this history. And he's not holding anything back. He's not, he's not just showing us the wonders of David's strength and power and popularity and his spirituality. He's also showing us all the, the nasty, dirty dregs of his life, and he's putting it all out there for us because I believe God wants us to understand that that's the way we all are, and that's why we so desperately need a Savior, and that's why he sent Jesus to take part in the pain that we live through on a daily basis, take part in the struggle, uh, and that's what Jesus has done, and that's what Jesus shows us. It's one thing for God to tell us that he loves us. But he doesn't just tell us. He has shown us through his son and shown us through giving us this history and explaining in great detail, if we're willing to see it, how easy it is to please him through faith and faithfulness. All right, chapter 5, I need a reader for 17 to 21. Screw your courage to the sticking place. And raise your hand to read. I'll read it all. I mean, I... All right, Robert's going to read again. He's going to go twice. And then uh, chapter 5, 22 to 25, that's a short one. Steve? And we'll hold off on chapter 6. We'll just read these last two in chapter 5, and then we'll pick up in chapter 6. All right, uh, Robert and then Steve. Now when the Philistines heard that they had David king over Israel, all the Philistines went out to seek out David. And when David heard about it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and all ran the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord said to David, Go up, or I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. Then David came and to about Perizim and defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through 
like to break through the waters. Therefore, he named the place Valkyrism. And the Philistines abandoned their idols there. So David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Reba to Nezer. All right, very interesting development. What do the Philistines hear about? David's king. What are they going to do? Well, it, you know, it, when you first read that, they went up to seek out David. It almost sounds like, oh, we want to meet with the new king. And no, yeah, they want to meet with the new king, but on the field of battle. That's where they want to meet with him. And so David goes down to the stronghold, and when the Philistines spread themselves out for war, what does David do? Right there in verse 19, he inquires of the Lord. This is his practice. This is his practice. Ask God, what do you want me to do? What should I do? Does God remain silent? He says, no. You go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And he defeated them at Baal Perazim, which means master of the breakthrough. That's, that's what he calls the name of the place. And so you can imagine later on in time when people going into that area and they see a sign, Baal Perazim, Master of the Breakthrough, they're reminded of this event in history because the, the name has a connection to history. This is where David defeated the Philistines after he became king. So what do the Philistines do when they're defeated? But they abandon their idols. Does that say anything? I'd like to have one more verse to tell me if they just were panicking and so they left them behind, afraid they'd be killed if they stopped to haul them off or if they said to themselves, these guys didn't do us any good, might as well leave them here. Who knows what they were thinking, but they abandoned them there. Which is interesting because what had happened before anybody became king in, in 1 Samuel? The Philistines came out to fight and the elders said, well, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. Let's bring it out from, where was it being kept at the time? I know we're going back a few months into our, our study here. It was being kept at Shiloh. It said, send to Shiloh, get the Ark, and we'll take the Ark into battle. And that's, that's a sure way that we'll defeat the Philistines. Well, who asked God about that? Nobody. Now, you would think, wow, we've got the Ark of God. What else do we need? Well, you need God to go with it. God did not go with it. He let it fall into the hands of the Philistines. So the Philistines had a great victory, quote unquote, that day. And they did what with the ark? They took it to Ashkelon, the capital city of the Philistines. And what started to happen to the Philistines? God smote them in their hinder parts. 
I don't know what that means, but it's not good. That is not good. And he evidently sent a bunch of mice into their food stores because later on when they decided to get rid of that ark and send it back to the Israelites, they they made images of things they called emirads. What's that sound like? Well, you know what that sounds like. And they made images of the mice. They made those things out of gold, put them in a box, and put them on the cart where the ark was to send back as, a, as an offering to God, a, a penitent offering to God. And so after Ashkelon, they sent it to, was it Gath or Ashkelon? And, and they sent it to three Philistine cities. And each one of those cities said, get this thing out of here. God is coming down hard on us. And so they, they put it on an ox cart and sent it back. Well, that's, that's what happened the first time. So they leave their idols on the battlefield. No big deal. But you don't mess with the ark of God because you're messing with God. So now David is asking God, should I go up against these Philistines? And God says, yes, go up. I'm going to deliver them into your hand. So the Philistines come back. It says in verse 22, the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the same place, Valley of Rephaim. And what's David do? What do I do, Lord? And what's God say? Don't go up directly. Apparently that's what he did last time. He says, okay, different plan this time. Go around behind them. Where? Into the balsam trees. What are balsam trees? Balsam firs. You ever build any model airplanes out of balsam wood? It's really soft and easy to work with. So balsam trees. Hang out at those balsam trees until what happens? It shall be, it says in verse 24, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. What? Can you imagine David's talking to his troops? Because he's, he's the commander now. He's with them. He's leading. He's out there on the battlefield, which is good. And he's saying to them, all right, here's the plan, guys. You remember back when they took Jericho, they marched around the city and blew some horns and shouted and the walls fell down. Okay, well, we're just going to ride up here to these balsam trees and we're going to wait until we hear marching and the sound of the tops of those trees. And you got to wonder if he told anybody that plan and if he told anybody that plan that God had given him, if anybody was saying, has David been dipping into the wine this morning or something? Or if they said, nope, this is a man of God. He's been asking God. God's given him good direction all the time. We don't know what everybody thought, if even everybody knew. But what would you and I think if somebody told us a plan like that? Well, now we think, oh, great, because we've seen the outcome of it. Yeah. Man, you're under those things. and you. What would that be like to hear the sound of marching above you? What is that? And David would be able to say, because God had told him, that's the Lord going forth to fight for us. Is this just here as a little bitty part of history that's unique and never to happen again? Or is the Lord always going out for us to help us fight our battles? Where is he every time we're in conflict? Where is he every time we come up against difficulty in life? 
Is he not always, what did Jesus say before he ascended? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord's with us all the time. He goes out to fight our battles. This isn't something that's just Old Testament history and it's not happening now. The angel of the Lord, David wrote, encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And that truth would be echoed in the New Testament when the Hebrew writer would say, who are angels but servants of those who are heirs of the kingdom of God? God's angels fight for us. God's servants serve us. They minister to us. They take care of us. I really believe if we are shown these things in eternity, we will be blown away as we will be by everything else. And I use blown away in the best possible sense. But to see what angels have done for us and how many perhaps we have worn out. Uh, <laughs> I think about that sometimes too. But, but this is just a, a wonderful piece of history and it's almost something you just read and pass over but there it is god says you go around behind him this time and you wait until you hear me moving and then you move steve sometimes wonder and think about it that uh david could have defeated the philistine just like he did the first time but i sometimes i wonder that god was testing in a way good and different do it this way uh, go around behind him, just like he did with Moses. He said, "Speak to the rock." Exactly. And the next time he said, or he said, "Strike the rock." And the next time he said, "Speak to the rock." And with David, he said, "Attack him from the front." And this time, do it different. And and David obeyed. Him. Yeah. And then you see, fifteen hundred years of the law and the priesthood. And the temple and the sacrifices. 1,500 years of pilgrimages to Jerusalem. 1,500 years of that city being the place where God has put his name. 1,500 years of the Israelites being the people of God. And then all of a sudden your Messiah shows up, the Messiah of Israel, and he says, now everybody's included. There is a new Jerusalem and all nations will flow unto it and it's not located geographically. It's in the hearts of men who put their faith in God. And we're going to establish the truth by preaching the gospel of my, Jesus would say, death, burial, and resurrection. So that people might join me in my death by being baptized based on their faith in me. And I will make them new creations, new creatures. And I will forgive their sin and put my spirit in them. And it doesn't matter where in the world they are. And they never have to travel anywhere to worship God. They don't have to bring any sacrifice because I'm the sacrifice. They don't have to go to a high priest because I'm the high priest. Changes. Changes are always being made until the right change is made and the Lord's kingdom has been established. This is the right change and this is the way it will be until the Lord returns. And we put our faith in him and we practice his ways and we do it as weak and sinful people but we do it because of our faith and that's what makes all the difference. And that's all David is doing. He's a weak and sinful man. But he keeps calling on God. What do I do? What do I do? i got a situation. What do I do? And God says, you do this. And David says, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. He doesn't even think about it. Well, let me, th- I don't know. I'm, sure, I'm not sure about this. Steve? And I'm also, why did God, for those reasons that you just said, why did God pick David? <coughs> but there's another reason that you read 
and that's in verse 12 of chapter 5. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people. Right. God's always interested in his people. And he picked Saul, but Saul became big-headed, you know. God picked David, but the reason he picked him was the type of person, and he picked him for the sake of, of his people. That was the main thing, that he would lead his people after God and, and not himself. Absolutely. And why did Jesus come? But for the sake of his people. Jesus did not need what he brought for us. We needed it. So he came for our sake. He offered himself up for our sake. It resulted in his glory. What did Paul write about that in the letter to the church at Ephesus? Jesus emptied himself out, and therefore God has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. But it was only after Jesus offered himself up that he was exalted. And it works the same for us. You and I will be exalted after we have emptied ourselves and given ourselves to the Lord. You give your life to the Lord, he gives it back to you with bonus, huge bonus. The apostles said to Jesus, Lord, we've, we've given up houses and farms and homes. And he said, there's not a one of you who's given up anything, house, farm, or home, that won't receive a hundredfold in this life and in the world to come, what? Eternal life. Pretty good trade. Pretty good trade when you consider the value of, of what we have here, really. Ever build a new house? If you've been fortunate enough to do that, you are at the point where you can begin to see your house start to decay. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? But it, it's the truth. Everything that's new in this world begins to decay. I remember uh, learning how to adjust. Of course, the cars don't have these things anymore. Motorcycles don't have them. I don't, I don't guess motorcycles have them. Used to adjust points. Change a condenser, put a new set of points in, contact points, and they set around a cam. And as a cam would go, they would open the points, and then cam would go past, and they would close back again. And that's how your ignition worked. And you would take great pains with a feeler gauge to adjust those. And all the old guys in here going, yeah, yeah, I remember that. As soon as you get those perfectly adjusted, what happens? They begin to go out of adjustment. <laughs> it's, it's by tiny increments, but, but that's what I was taught. As soon as you get them right, they'll start to go wrong. That's the way everything is in this world, the physical part of this world, the physical part of this world. That's why Paul would write to the church at Corinth. The outward man is decaying away, but the inner man is renewed when? Every day. Every day. Do not put your hope in the things of this world. It does not last. But the things of the next world are eternal and much more valuable. So here we are looking at all that from this. Lord willing, we'll start in chapter 6 next week. And uh, so uh, I encourage you to read ahead. That's allowed in this class. Thank you for your kind attention.